At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to tune into our current series, Assembly Required, Building a Case for Church, where we'll see what the Psalms teach us about a life of faith lived in community. So we're in Psalm 40. If you have a Bible or um, a device, you can follow along. We're going to conclude our series today, Assembly Required. So, um, so you guys know that uh, about a little over eight months ago, uh, my wife and I uh, just moved here to Michigan. I know that you guys know that. Um, but I think one of the things that we often take for granted when we move from one place to another uh, is all the like little things that you're used to in your home location that you now have to learn in your uh, new location, right? Like the things you don't think about, like, oh, I need to find a new doctor, or I need to find a new dentist, or I need to find a new mechanic, which we all know is important, or I need to find a new barber. I definitely need a barber at this point, probably, but you know, it's all those, it's all those little things that you're used to at home, and then you move to a new place, and now we got to figure out all, all this stuff, and it, at times it can feel frankly overwhelming. Like, where do I go? Who do I contact? Who can I trust? Right? I mean, you got to have a trustworthy auto mechanic. I have no idea how to fix a car. They could tell me something costs five million dollars. I don't know. Whatever. Just here's the money. Let's go. Fix it, please. Right? You're like, you want those things. And so we, we have begun our search over the last few months. And thankfully, though, we have had you guys as our church family to kind of help in that regard and people who've been willing to say, hey, have you tried this or this is a reliable place or this is a doctor you should check out or whatever it is. And through that kind of process, um, I've begun to just realize again the kind of power of personal testimony. Right, when you're in the middle and the search for those things, you can go online, you can go to Google, and you can uh, kind of search and read reviews and try to figure out like, oh, wait, who, who's this, what, you know, but, but when somebody says, hey, this, this is a place you can trust, this is a place you need to go to, this, this is somewhere that's reliable, suddenly there's, there's a significant power to that. And I'm much more likely to try something where somebody can personally testify to that place or person or that situation. But there's something I've even found that's even more powerful than just the personal testimony, and that's the collective testimony. When somebody tells me, hey, more than, I'm sorry, when more than one person tells me, hey, you need to try this restaurant, you need to go here, this is a good place, I am much more apt to listen to what they have to say because multiple people are attesting to that situation or that place. There is a tremendous power in the act of testifying. There's even a more tremendous power in the act of collective testifying. Throughout our series over these last few weeks, we've been really taking time together on, uh, during our teaching to think and engage what we do when we gather together. That's why we've called this series Assembly Required. Because oftentimes it's easy for us to come and engage on a Sunday. Maybe we come in the building, maybe we engage online, and we kind of just do what we do as the church, but we never stop to think, what are the things we're actually engaging and why are we engaging those things? And that's why we wanted to take time in this series to think about what we do when we gather together. And some of the stuff we've talked about over the last few weeks is that we gather to, to hear and engage God's word. That's part of what we do, that during this time God speaks to us through his word and we respond in worship and praise. We, we gather to confess our sin and, and to remind ourselves of God's forgiveness, experiencing his cleansing and joy in Christ Jesus. Last week, Pastor Joel did a phenomenal job reminding us that we gather to praise together 
to sing and engage and worship God. But this morning, as we kind of conclude our series, I want us to think about the idea that we gather together to testify to God's deliverance. That part of why we gather and what we do when we come together, whether it's in this place or even when we come together in our life groups in different settings, it is to testify to God's deliverance. Because personal and collective testimony is powerful. And it's one of the ways that we worship God together. That we come to bear witness to who he is and to what he has done. And so throughout this series, we've been engaging the book of Psalms, which is the prayer book in the Bible that helps us to think about how we worship, what we engage, how we engage God when we come together. And so this morning, we find ourselves in Psalm 40. And Psalm 40 is a reminder of what it looks like when we gather to testify to God's deliverance. So let's jump in, and I kind of want to unpack this, and we'll kind of unfurl what it has for us as we go. So in Psalm 40, I'm going to start even above verse 1, where it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David. It's always good when you're reading a psalm to start and remind ourselves what's the purpose, what's the audience, what is this written for? So this is a psalm of David. He was the king of Israel, and he wrote this psalm to the choir master, or the chief musician in the temple. So this is a psalm that's written for a collective audience to be sung, to be engaged, to be reminded. So it's written, again, to help a community of people engage God and to think about what it looks like to engage God together. And really we see throughout this psalm that it is a song of testimony. You see it right away in, uh, in verse 1. David writes, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And so the psalm really begins with kind of a testimony of personal deliverance. The psalmist finds himself, as he describes his his previous situation, he describes a time where he was in desperate need for the Lord. That opening phrase, I waited patiently for the Lord. That phrase does not condone the idea of like, I was just like sitting back, twiddling my thumbs, kind of waiting to see what God was going to do. No, the idea is more, I was in desperation and I was fervently waiting, praying, seeking, acting, waiting for God to do something. He's in agony, and he's petitioning for God's deliverance. It's likely even in this situation that aspects of his life are threatened, or he's in deep despair, such that he likens that situation to being in a pit or stuck in a miry bog. We see from the get-go that the psalmist is in a dire situation. You likely in your life have been in that situation before as well, where you feel the kind of weight of the world. You feel like you're stuck. You feel like you're in that pit. But he bears testimony in this that from that place, God delivered him. It says that God heard my cry. He responds. He takes his feet from that miry bog and he sets them on a rock. And not only does that, he gives him a new song to sing so that his woeful cries of agony are turned into joyful songs of praise. The idea here in the opening of the psalm is that God has delivered and intervened and really the result that has come is joy and trust. 
One of the things I think we learn about this opening psalm is that when we gather to testify, part of what we testify is that God is our rock, that God has delivered us and brought us from the pit of destruction to a firm foundation. You see, in many ways, the root of testimony is the experience of the deliverance of the Lord and the resulting trust that is put in Him. And our collective testimony ultimately comes from our personal testimony, our personal experience that the psalmist describes here and that many of us have experienced where God steps in and saves us from the pit of our sin, our brokenness, and follows us and delivers us and puts us on a firm foundation. It's that personal testimony that when brought together collectively bears witness to our, to our collective testimony. So you can't have collective testimony if you don't have personal testimony, right? If, if after our time today, we all went out into the parking lot and I was talking to several of you because we got a nice Kona ice truck out there, we're ready to hang out and mingle in a socially acceptable way, right? Even if you're watching online, we would love if you want to come after service, we're going to be out back and enjoy just the time together. But let's say we were hanging around, we were having, you know, we were talking, chatting, you were filling me in on the things about Detroit and, and you say, hey, if you haven't tried it, you need to try Detroit pizza, and one of the best places to go for Detroit pizza is Buddy's. You have got to try Buddy's, right? It's kind of one of those Detroit staples. And so I said, oh, really? Tell me about it. Like, what that is that? Now, I've had Buddy's, but just go with me here, right? Like, so I just said, hey, tell me about it. What is that pizza like? And, and there were a few of you standing there, and they were like, well, I don't, I don't know. I've never eaten Buddy's. I think at that point, I'd be like, what are you talking about? Like, how, how can you tell me it's such good pizza? I've got to try it if, if you've never tried it. Right? If there isn't the personal experience, the collective experience is meaningless at that point. You see, it, it can be similar to us. The power of our collective testimony when we gather comes because we have personally experienced Christ. We have personally experienced that deliverance. And because we've personally delivered that experience, there is now power in our collective testimony. Similarly, if we had that conversation and you all said, oh man, you've got to try it, we all have it, we love it, it's the best, because there's multiple witnesses at that point, man, I've got to try buddies, and I've got to go, and I've got to eat that pizza, and it's so good. And, and the reality is that because of your collective testimony, as I eat that pizza or try that pizza, I then move to a place where I have my own testimony. Right? Personal testimony leads to collective testimony, which leads again to personal testimony. We, we actually see this, I think, a great example of this in John chapter 4 in the life of Jesus, where John encounters the woman at the well in Samaria, and she has a dramatic encounter with Jesus where he reminds her of, of, of uh, her, her life and who he is, and she comes to realize that he's the Messiah, and she goes back and begins to tell her village. She begins to testify to the reality of who Jesus is, and the villagers are curious, and they come out to uh, experience. But at the end of that, there's this great little phrase about the reality of personal testimony and the impact that it can have. It says in uh, John 4, 39, it says, Many Samaritans from the town believed in him, Jesus, because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, catch this, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, 
For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You see, her testimony had such an impact that they then went and were able to experience the reality of Jesus where they then had their own testimony. See, that's the power of personal testimony, and that's what the psalmist is reminding us of at the beginning of Psalm 40, that our personal testimony bears witness in such a way that others hear that, and they then can seek after the Lord and begin to experience his deliverance as well. Have you experienced the deliverance that God brings? If you haven't, I encourage you today, God desires to deliver you. If you have experienced that, remember what God has done and the power of our own testimony towards his deliverance in Jesus Christ. But the psalmist continues out of that place of personal testimony. It begins to have an impact on him. Look at verse 4. It says, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. So out of the experience of his deliverance, it now moves him into this place where he begins to proclaim and speak of the reality of what God has done, of his wondrous deeds and thoughts toward us. Do you, do you realize, do you know how much God loves you and what he has done for you in Jesus? And it leads him to this place of proclamation, but it also leads him to a place where he desires to live the way God intends. Look at verse 6. In sacrifice and offering, you've not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burn offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. You see, the experience of deliverance leads him to a place where he desires to praise God not only with his lips, but also with his life. To proclaim the goodness of God and to live and do his will. But it's from there then, in that desire as it grows, that begins to lead him to a place of public praise. And this is where I really want us to focus a little bit of our attention for a moment. Look at verse 9. I have told the glad news of your deliverance. That's where we get our idea for this morning that we gather to testify to God's deliverance. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. So notice the flow of the text. He's experienced a personal deliverance that's resulted in a transformation in his life that declares the praise of God and seeks to live for him. But then it leads him to a place where he desires to publicly testify and declare the goodness of God and declare what God has done. To come into the congregation and to speak and tell of who God is and the great work of deliverance that he has accomplished. You see, public praise in testimony is such an important part of what happens when we gather. 
Again, whether that's here on a Sunday or even when we gather within our life groups, when we gather together, we do so in a way where we want to bear testimony to God and his great work of deliverance. In fact, it's so important that the psalmist reminds us that when we fail to do that, when we fail to actually publicly praise God and to testify to him that it actually hides the knowledge of God from others. Notice that. Notice how he says, I've told this glad news in the congregation, right? Look at 10. I've not hidden your deliverance. So the idea is if I didn't speak, I would be hiding. I've spoken of your faithfulness and because of that, I haven't concealed. You see, the reality is when we fail to publicly testify, when we fail to publicly bear witness, we can actually withhold the reality of the knowledge and truth of God from others. One commentator on this passage I think has an important uh, note on this. She writes that the psalmist claims that to withhold praise of the Lord in the great congregation is to conceal knowledge of God's very character from the great congregation. To withhold praise does not damage God, but it does damage God's mission in the sense that to withhold praise is to withhold saving knowledge from the neighbor who needs it. It is to withhold God's righteousness, faithfulness, mercy, and covenant love from the neighbor. You see, when we gather and we bear witness when we praise God together. We proclaim who he is. We speak to what he has done, allowing others to hear and respond to the greatness and truth of our God. And this is not something that is just done from the front or from the stage. This is something that we all participate in. Our participation matters in our gathered public witness. Think of it this way. If someone who's not yet a believer in Jesus comes in and they observed you in this gathering, would they see this is someone who truly believes in God? They praise him. They engage him. They speak and sing of his... They they come like it matters and like he's here. Or would they observe you and think, I think that's just someone going through the motions. I'm not even sure if they really believe this stuff. You see, our participation speaks to the reality of what we've experienced in the deliverance of God. And when you do participate, when you engage, those that come in to the congregation are able to then see and say, yes, this is a place that believes in Jesus. They're encouraged to see Christ and his deliverance. Not only that, your fellow brother and sister is encouraged in their faith. It's the collective witness of us together that testifies to the deliverance of God. You might think of it this way. So, um, a number of years ago, in, uh, when LeBron James was still playing for the Cleveland Cavaliers in his first round, right? I know you guys aren't from Cleveland, but hang with me for a minute, right? Nike unfurled this massive advertising campaign called We Are All Witnesses. 
You might have seen it if you watched any basketball back then. And at the time, there were a bunch of commercials with LeBron doing amazing things and dunking. And then there'd flash across the thing, we are all witnesses. And in downtown Cleveland, there was this billboard the size of half the city that said it. And it was this massive, huge campaign that Nike unfurled. But the power of the campaign didn't come just in the TV commercials. It didn't just come in the billboard advertisements. It actually came in a series of all-black t-shirts that simply just said, Witness, across the front with the Nike black logo. And Nike sold and gave away these t-shirts all around the country, but especially in Cleveland. And during that time, if you would have went to a Cleveland Cavaliers game, you would have seen the advertisements that we are all witnesses, but you would have gone and you would have seen tons of people wearing the shirts that just said witness. And if you sat in that arena and you saw those shirts around the arena worn at the games, there was a collective power, a collective testimony to a basketball player. But the power wasn't just in what was presented up front. It was in the fact that each person, especially in Cleveland, was bearing witness to how good LeBron James went. In many ways, I think that's the power that exists within the church. I can stand on a stage and proclaim till I'm blue in the face and out of breath how amazing Jesus is. I can yell it. I can whisper it. I can try to be as animated as it. I can put out as much media as I can get. I can post to Facebook or Instagram as much as I can, but the collective power of the church is not in its public performance. It's in the power of the testimony of of its people. That's where the power is. And it's when we bear witness together that Jesus is glorified. People don't come in here looking to me to see what I believe. They come in here looking at us to see what we believe and if we're actually about what we say we're about. And so we must be the testimony. And when we come together, we do so to bear witness to Christ. And I think this is part of the reason why we are called to make gathering together a priority of our lives. It's why it's one of our values here. Now, hear me. I know it's COVID. I know some of us are in this building. Some of us are at home. Some of us are doing church at home this morning, gathering with smaller groups. The point is not the space in which you gather. The point is the priority of gathering. Do you make gathering together to worship Jesus and bear witness to him on a weekly basis a priority of your life? If not, I would question genuinely your genuine worship and love of Jesus. You cannot be someone who says, my whole life is about worshiping God, but I don't like really getting together with other people to do it. That makes no logical sense biblically. And the reality of the Christian life is our lives are lives of worship that are meant to give glory to God. And so we gather to do that, and there's power when we do that together. And so let us be a church that bears witness to Christ. And in many ways, the importance of collective testimony is seen in how this psalm closes. There's a massive shift that takes place in verses 11 and 12. You'll see it. It says, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Now hear verse 12. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see it. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. 
Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha and Aha. This psalm, in many ways, is a reversal of many common psalms that you might read. If you read through the book of Psalms, you will see that a majority of psalms kind of start with prayer or petition, a desire for God to move or intervene or act, and then move towards praise or worship of God. This psalm actually works in the opposite direction. It begins with a testimony and praise, and then in verse 12, it shifts to a place of petition. The psalmist recognizes the reality of his current situation, that once again he is in a place where he needs God's intervention and deliverance, and so he cries out for God to intervene once more. I love this aspect of this psalm for two reasons. One, it reminds us of the power of testimony. Two, it reminds us of the reality of life. You and I know that life does not just go from mountaintop to mountaintop, that it is just not an easy thing and that life is always smooth. But in fact, life is hard and challenging. There are many times where we are in the throes of despair, where we feel like we're back in that pit, stuck in that miry bog. And the psalmist feels that same thing. That's why in verse 13, he almost prays what he declared in verse 1. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste to help me. See, the reality of testimony is that it's powerful in our continual lives which face challenges and hardships on the regular. And here we find him praying again. And in many ways, it reminds us of kind of our last thing about testifying, that you and I need to pray that God would keep us testifying. Because sometimes it's not easy to testify. Sometimes life is hard. Sometimes we face things that bring us back to that place of despair. But that's where the testimony and the testifying of God's people is so important. Because you see, what we realize in the psalm is that the prayer for deliverance is ultimately rooted out of the reality of God's deliverance. That we pray for deliverance from God because we have seen and borne witness to his continual deliverance of his people. And so we can be encouraged to continue and remain steadfast, and that God will deliver us once again. You see, the reality is that sometimes when you're in the valley, you need to go and remind yourself of what God showed you on the mountain. That God has worked in the past, that God has spoken, that he has done something in Jesus. And when you're in the throes where it feels like evil's multiplying and my sins keep multiplying, you need to go back to that place where you remind yourself, no, God is good. God does love me. His promises are for me. And that's where our collective witness can be a powerful statement to one another. That's why I think he ends in verse 16, right? 
He goes back to that place and says, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. Now here it is. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. What does the psalmist do when he's in the midst? He brings praise in the midst of his problems. He's willing to go back and remind himself, God is still to be proclaimed as great. God is still my help and my deliverer. That God still intervenes for You see, when we're in the midst of problems, when life is hard, we need praise. We not only need our praise, we need the praise of others. We need that collective testimony that says, yes, Jesus is enough. Yes, God will get me through this. Yes, God is a deliverer. This is who he is. And this is what the power that happens within collective testimony. Because you might walk into this place, maybe not this week, maybe it's next week or down the road, where you're in that pit of despair and you don't have the words to praise, but you look and you see a brother or sister in Christ, You see someone who engages and your heart is stirred and you're reminded of the truth of who God is. You're reminded that he can be trusted. You're reminded that he's good even when you're not feeling it yourself because you see the testimony of others. This is why we gather to testify to God's deliverance. And ultimately, how do we know How do we know that God is this way? That God is a God of deliverance and that we can testify it? Well, we ultimately know because of Christ. You see, this psalm is picked up by the New Testament writer in the book of Hebrews, and he reminds us in that passage that Christ is the one who offers himself and brings us deliverance. If you turn to Hebrews 10, you can see this, and we'll close by looking at this passage together. In Hebrews 10, verse 5, we see it says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the books. So he quotes directly from Psalm 40 and essentially says, When Christ comes, he says, The sacrifices aren't worthy, but my body is being prepared ultimately to do your will. It continues in verse 8 when he said, Above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first order in order to establish the second. And here's the key verse. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You see, the reality in the New Testament reminds us that God is a God of deliverance. That though you and I were in the pit and destruction of our sin because of our brokenness, our fallenness, and our rebellion, that God, he didn't send an animal, he didn't sacrifice a goat, he sent his own son to die on our behalf. That by that sacrifice, we might be delivered from that pit, set on the rock of Christ for all eternity, given a hope, delivered 
from our sin and ultimately sanctified through Jesus once for all. We have deliverance because of the work of Christ. And so when we're in the pit, when we're in the place of despair, we can look to Christ and remind ourselves that God is a deliverer. God is someone that we can put our hope in. And then when we gather together, we come to bear witness to the deliverer, to bear witness to the work that he does. That's why the writer continues down and in verse, um, sorry, in verse 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Hold fast to your testimony. Hold fast to the deliverance that God has shown you. And then he says this, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, when we gather together, we come to encourage one another, to remind ourselves that yes, Jesus has delivered me and he can do the same for you. To remind ourselves that we have that hope that we just sang about earlier, that God is faithful and he will be faithful all the way through. And so as we close this series, let me remind you even from these words, let us not neglect meeting together. Let us be reminded of the power of the gathering that when we come together, we collectively testify to God's deliverance in Jesus Christ. May we be a living testimony as a church in this place to the greatness of Jesus and his work. Even now, we're going to sing and worship and remind ourselves of it. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we so grateful just in this moment that you did deliver us. That when we were in that pit, when we were stuck in that mire, no option to get out, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you, out of your sovereign grace, pulled us out. You made us alive. You set us firm on the foundation of Christ. And we together stand in him as your people and say thank you. We give you the praise and we give you the honor that you are due. Because, oh God, you saved us. God, I pray for anyone here this morning, for all of us in those moments where we feel like we're stuck again, where we're in that mire, I pray that you would first remind us of your character, that you are a deliverer, that your thoughts and affections are for us, that you would set again our hope on Christ, be reminded of what he's done in his death and resurrection for us, and that you would help us to stand fast, to say great is the Lord continually. Even now, would you stir our hearts towards that place? May you be worshipped for your great faithfulness, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today.